Julie at Dogcast Radio. If you like dogs, wherever you are in the world, we're the show for you. Hello and welcome to episode 112 of Dogcast Radio. This is our Christmas episode, so we have some treats for you. An interview with David Ryan on why dogs bark. Most of the social communication is, is face-to-face or sometimes face-to-bum in dogs' cases. And yeah, and most, uh, most wild canids just don't use a bark at all. The, the, the kind of best documented one is a kind of a low woof sound um, that a, a wolf mother will give to cubs. And it basically means hide quick. A seasonal buddy's diary, plus the Dogcast Radio news and more. But before all that, Joyce Geyer. Joyce is a Border Collie expert and has competed in trials with her dogs at the highest levels. She knows that Border Collies, like many other breeds, are happiest with a job to do. And at this time of year, when we're thinking about what present to give our dogs for Christmas, maybe what we should be thinking about is how can we make the time we spend with them really quality time, and how can we keep them happy and occupied? Oh, that's a lovely, lovely question. And you're right, I think the best, uh, the best holiday present for any dog would be a commitment from its owner to spend half an hour or 45 minutes a day with it every single day. I think the dogs would be thrilled. Yeah. And you've... And you've got a really key point there, though. If you are going to spend the time, how do you spend it most profitably? How do you use it for the best for the dog and for yourself and for your family and, and everybody else? I would, I would say that it falls into two different categories. The first one, and probably the most important, is structured physical exercise. Mm-hmm. The second one would be some structured mental exercise. If you really want to give your dog a super holiday present, you'll pursue both of those, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Because it, it's funny, but we don't think of mental activities as, as tiring a dog out. But if you play, I mean, we, we've played sort of hide and seek with our Labrador. Um, mm-hmm. And he, he really, after, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, he's had enough. He has. His brain is tired. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's a difference um, when I say structured physical or structured mental exercise. This is kind of important. Structured physical exercise actually has a mental component to it. Hmm. And it is a human-led activity. It has an on switch and an off switch. Okay? And it requires a dog to focus. Not just run around and just have action, but requires a dog to focus. So I think of some examples like that. The dog running free in the garden, just being put out in the garden or the backyard for an hour, that's nice. The dog is indeed getting some sort of exercise and it's getting some fresh air and it's a lovely thing to do. But that really doesn't qualify as structured physical exercise. Yeah. There's no human involved. The dog has no mental focus other than what it might choose to do. It may run around a lot but it doesn't really get structure or structured activity. Same thing, taking your dog for a walk while the dog drags you around the block, that's not very good structured physical exercise either. The only mental component there the dog has is how hard can I pull? How hard can I pull? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and the owner hasn't exactly controlled that, you know, they didn't start it. They didn't they're not they can't stop it. But going for a nice walk where the owner is setting the pace and the dog is walking along on a nice loose leash, paying attention, thinking about the human, thinking about, right, we're just walking now. Oh, that's interesting that I see a cat, but we're just walking now. Oh, this is good. That actually is incredibly productive. Half an hour of that will beat, oh, geez, two or three hours of a dog running around in the garden all by itself. Mm, yeah, yeah. So, so, so it sounds silly, but we can all learn to take our dogs for a nice, controlled walk. And that most of us probably do once or twice a day. Well, just add it a little longer and really add the mental focus in. And your dogs will be getting very, very good, uh, very good exercise and they'll appreciate it. They'll appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. That's a really good tip because, you know, when, particularly when people are busy and you, if you think, oh, I can't go a really long walk now, I can, you know, fit sort of 20, 30 minutes in now. But as you say, if you bring that focus in as well, the time mm-hmm. will have, you know, have more effect, won't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you're, and again, it's bringing in some of that mental focus on the dog's part. 
to physical exercise, and that is a phenomenal, phenomenal combination. A couple of other things that really work well. Um, once, once your dog has mastered walking and paying attention, <laughs> let him trot next to your bicycle. Hmm. Go on a bike ride in a safe neighborhood and teach your dog to trot at heel next to your bike and to keep going even when there are distractions. Not to pull, not to tug, not to stop, but to keep trotting. You can go for a 10 or 15 minute trot and your dog will feel pretty good and pretty tired at the end of that. Yeah, yeah. A treadmill. A treadmill. I love treadmills. I've got treadmills in my basement. My dogs love them. I love them. I love it when the dogs are on it. I'm not sure I love it when I'm on it. Anyway, <laughs> um, putting a dog and teaching a dog to walk and trot on a treadmill is another phenomenal exercise. You would think it's not mental, but the dog has to concentrate very much on walking or trotting at the same pace the belt is going. They can't stop, and they can't go faster. Yeah. And so, again, that's an outstanding, outstanding exercise. Yeah, yeah. Now, with both of those activities, obviously, as you, you've, you've said, you, you have to sort of teach your dog um, sort Absolutely. of how to do it. So how long does it take a dog to get the hang of those? On a treadmill? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, it depends on the dog. You, it's one of those things you can't force a dog to do, but you certainly can let them know it's not an option not to do it. There's <laughs> a little yeah. difference there. <laughs> I take my dogs on, and first I teach them just to actually get on the thing without it running and lay down and be comfortable on it. Mm-hmm. And the next step is I teach them the idea that you get on at the back and the only way off of this is with forward motion off of the front of the treadmill. Mm. It still isn't running, but the idea that they can get on and they can walk, they can't bolt, that they can walk through and they can walk out the front of the treadmill and life is good on the other end. And then I basically stand with them on it. I will put one foot on each rail so that I'm not on the belt. And I'll stand, I'll teach the dog to come from behind, go through my legs and go off the front. And then one day I just stop them there and I hold them. I have them on a leash so they can't get in trouble. And I just stop and I just hold them. I put one hand gently like underneath their rib cage, usually my right hand since I'm mm-hmm. right-handed. And my left hand, I just gently have the leash so that they have to think about going forward. I get them used to that idea, and then after a few days, I'll just put the treadmill on. Mine goes fairly slow, very slow, the slowest pace, and all I want the dog to do is not panic and get used to the idea that it can kind of move its feet. Yeah. And when it has that, I actually let it go. I actually tell it, okay, go. And I let the dog run or go off the front of the treadmill. And what they have learned is they can move kind of in place, but then there's forward motion. I just continue that until the dog gets the idea. Soon I stand uh, next to them, again with the treadmill going slow here, very slow, so that they're doing it without me kind of holding them up. Mm-hmm. And um, then they learn to walk, and then they learn to walk at one mile an hour for a minute, and then it's one mile an hour for two minutes, and then three minutes, and four minutes, and then we maybe we'll go up to 1.2 miles an hour. And over the course of about two weeks, you can teach a dog to maintain a five- or six-minute good, strong walk on the treadmill. Now, from there, you just expand it. You, you make it faster so they learn to trot. They have to learn that they can break into a trot. And, um, and then you've got it. Then you've got it. Yeah. I mean, that must come into its own when, you know, if the weather is horrible outside or, you know, if for some reason you are injured or not well or whatever and you can't go outside that day, that's, that's a lifesaver, isn't it? It really is. You cannot leave the dogs on unattended. Mm. That's dangerous. So it doesn't particularly save you any time, but it does save you going out, in my case, in snowdrifts. Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing, for, from a competition perspective, what I really like on it is because the dog has to move at a consistent pace, in many ways I can target it for very specific muscle group development. Or if a dog has been a little bit sore or a little bit lame, I can put it on the treadmill, watch and see how well it's healing, or even just get their gait evened up and balanced up to prevent future um, future injuries. So treadmills are great things. And I suppose if you set one up in the um, in the family room, 
so that while you were watching TV, the dog could treadmill? Mm. This could have potential. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. I do like that. As you say, not not so keen on me going on it, but the dogs, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, you do have to make sure you get a treadmill that's, got, that's long enough. Uh, many human treadmills are too short, so you really have to buy a long one if you've got a medium to a large dog. Mm. Um, but, again, it's something, uh, it's just another option for people. Yeah, yeah. And with, with the bike option, um, do you have the dog on lead? Or do you, you know, what's the safest way to do it, on or off lead? Well, I always do it on lead. Right, okay. I just make very sure that the dog is not tied to my bike. Yes, <laughs> so so my dogs will just trot next to me and I just have them on a leash which I am holding okay fairly loosely I've got it so that if a dog happens to really bolt or do something that I can indeed drop the leash but also that I can hang on to them if I need to yeah there is a device available called a springer which fits most bikes and it um, attaches on the back wheel but it has a very low center of gravity and a big spring, and you can actually hook your dog onto this, this gizmo. And no matter how hard the dog pulls, it will not pull your bike over. That is the most incredibly safe way to do it. Mm. Um, I do have one on one of my bicycles, and it's great. Yeah, yeah. Now, just a, a sort of something that um, strikes me here, because I have occasionally sort of seen, I, I, I've seen a, a man on a bike with, um, it was a beagle. And he's sort mm-hmm. of, you know, uh, cycling along quite happily and the little dog's trotting along and quite hot and sort of looking, I'd like to stop actually. So how do we make sure that the dog um, is having a positive experience with this? Ah, beautiful questions across the board, whether you're talking <laughs> any sort of treadmill or trotting next to your dog, uh, trotting next to a bike or anything like that. You look at the dog's attitude. First, they may be a little uncertain in the beginning, but uncertainty is not fear. If a dog is afraid, you need to stop and back up and encourage it through and let it see that there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just weird. It's just Mm. bizarre. That's it. Second, you cannot over-exercise the dog. So if your dog comes back from these things with its tongue dragging on the ground, you're overdoing it. The dog isn't fit, either mentally or physically, to do that. Also look, always keep an eye on how the dog is moving. If the dog starts to limp at all, you need to stop right then. Mm. Maybe it tore a pad. Maybe it just stepped on a sharp thing. Maybe you need to stop and make sure the dog is okay. And that may mean if you're out on your bicycle that you walk home, walking the bike and with the dog walking very slowly next to you. I always keep the sessions short in the beginning, very short until the dog learns what's expected. And then I very, very slowly increase the distance. I talk to the dogs and tell them they're good. We kind of keep up a running dialogue on the bike. (laughs) Yeah. You know, even on a treadmill, right? Keep up now. Keep up. Steady. Steady. If I'm going to stop or the treadmill's going to stop, I just go, whoa, now, whoa. So they know what's going on. Yeah. On a bike, if I'm getting ready to turn and the dog is on the outside of the turn, I'll say, right now, hop up, hop up, keep up, keep up. The dog knows they've got to go a little faster and they don't get dragged. If I'm turning and they're on the inside, so they have to go slower, I go, steady now, whoa, whoa, steady, steady, ease. So the dog learns to back up, just to ease up. And they actually begin to think it's quite fun. They (laughs) trot along proud, sort of looking at the neighborhood. The neighborhood dog is like, ha-ha, look at you. I'm taking my master for bike riding. You're just sitting on the porch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I imagine particularly, you know, with Border Collies, but with any sort of higher energy dog, German Shepherd and maybe some Labradors, you know, Springers, um, they're going to love it because, you know, I feel quite sorry for Buddy sometimes because I think he must look at me and go, can you please hurry up? You know, I, I'm so enthusiastic about going somewhere. Can you keep up with me? So to have your person on a bike must be wonderful. And I think my dogs in the past have thought that that they've looked at me and said, finally, you're getting the idea about how you're supposed to move through this world. Yes. <laughs> you know, they don't run, they trot, and I vary the pace, you know, and, and if we're out for a long ride, which might only be three miles, okay, two and a half or three miles, I'm not talking marathons here. Yeah. Um, and we find a nice spot, I'll, we'll stop. We'll stop, we'll take a break, they can walk around, they can sniff, they can eliminate, 
I then scoop everything up, of course, in baggies and put it on my bike saddlebag to bring back. We'll give, stop and give them a drink. And then we get back on with the job. And they really, really do like it and enjoy it. Yeah, yeah. Now, a good point about scooping the poop like that. Well done. <laughs> um, oh, always. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> obviously, as you say, you know, that there is a, a physical um, need for exercise. But with, particularly with a border collie, but with any bright dog and perhaps with any dog, there is so the mental side of things. So we're applying the brain in the exercise there. Are there things we can do that sort of are more purely mental or would you stick with the physical element as well um there are things which are purely mental it's all the physical exercise with focus with a mental component i think is a foundation for any happy dog any happy dog any fit happy relaxed obedient dog your structured physical exercise with again some mental focus i think that's the best way to get it but there are dogs border collies included that need um structured mental exercise as well. And this is where they're simply solving problems. They're solving doggy problems. We're not into calculus or astrophysics here. <laughs> but things like this, they probably aren't quite as active, but they but the dog still has to focus. Agility classes are mm-hmm. fantastic for that. You can get some speed there, right? And some exercise, but the dog really, really has to focus. You want emotional control there. Obedience classes are, are are great because a dog has some stimulation. There's other dogs there, but they have to focus and do a job. Freestyle, uh, dancing with dogs, yeah, also yeah. fantastic. The dog really has got to learn the routine. It has to focus. It has to think. Any sort of nose work, tracking, hide-and-seek, telling a dog to stay while you hide its favorite ball and then letting it find it and bring it back to you, those things are fantastic as well, and you can do them anywhere. Staring at your cat does not qualify as mental exercise. <laughs> okay? Chasing an intruder from the yard is not mental exercise. No, no. Because there's no on or off switch. Again, the human's not initiating it. Acting. Um, dog actors. That's a amazing mental exercise for the dog. Teaching the dog to go to cues, to go to a target, to follow hand signals at a distance, that type of work and activity, anybody can teach their dog to do. Yeah. They might not make it onto the big screen, but you can still teach the dog to do those things, and that's mental exercise. Um, tricks, quite possibly, depending how you do them, but tricks as well can teach a dog to do something and do something for you. One of my favorites, actually, is a 30-minute downstay. Hmm. The dog simply has to stay where you put it, in the position you put it in, just to lie down and stay there for 30 minutes. Wow. Most, some dogs fall asleep and they forget what they were doing. <laughs> well, that's not very good mental exercise, is it? And some of them go, right, it's been one minute and 17 seconds. I'm out of here. Yes. And that's not very good either. <laughs> So being able to teach a dog to concentrate on on staying still is a lovely, lovely thing for so many reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that really is um, an effort, as you say, mentally for them. Because, I mean, my, my lab will do, um, he, he's done his gold good citizen, so I think that's a two-minute down with a minute and a mm-hmm. half with you out of sight you know but if if there's something he really wants to get to we have groans and moans and whines and why can't i get up now you know kind of thing so there is mm-hmm. a huge self-restraint element of that isn't there yes there is yeah. yes there is and working it up 30 minutes is a very uh, it's challenging but it's very important yeah this is this is when um you decide that you're going to allow your dog in the house while you're cooking dinner and you want it out of the kitchen. So you put it somewhere, and you tell it, lie down and stay there, or down, stay, wherever your words are. And you finish dinner, and you look over, and 30 minutes later, your dog is still lying there. He mm. might be watching very intently, but he hasn't gotten underfoot. Mm. It's, the, it's the emergency situation where you are out, and something happens, and you need to be able to park your dog to go um, help someone else, okay, um, tend to a car that just broke down, to be able to take a dog, and even if you tie it just to be safe, and say, down, stay. And knowing the dog is going to stay there, 
Yeah. While you tend to whatever needs tending to, man, that's really great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do, do you know another another time that the stay or the wait command, which, whichever you're going to use, is mm-hmm. critical, and it horrifies me that people don't do this, is when you're getting the dog from the car. You know, both exactly. of our, yeah, both of us know, okay, the door opens, but you wait until you are told. Um, and mm-hmm. it, I mean, it saves them from so much danger. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And this can form the foundation for that. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can even, and you can do, the fun thing about the, a long downstay like that is you can do it anywhere. You know, set the dog up, tell it, okay, now you can't go overboard with this, but tell the dog, downstay, and put its food dish down. Now, I don't know if I'd ask the dog to stay for 30 minutes, but I certainly wouldn't have any problem saying, I told you down, I told you stay. Yeah. You stay until I release you. 30 seconds, minute, minute and a half. Now I can eat your dinner. Yeah. You know, uh, you practice, you've, you, hey, you put the dog in the car with the door open, tell him down and stay and go mow the garden while you're, while you're watching. Yeah. Teach yeah. the dog to stay there, right? So that is mental exercise because it is emotional control. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think the nice thing is that you've you've outlined a whole range of things there that would apply to, you know, every dog, dog breed, every but every age of dog. You know, if your dog isn't very active, then you can do the down stay. If you know, but I mean, which obviously will be useful with a more active dog as well. But you can pick exactly what fits your dog and his needs, can't you? Exactly, exactly. You know, um, just like taking a dog for a walk on a leash may suit some people. Others might prefer to bike. Others might prefer to get a treadmill. So you've got all sorts of different options. You can do this. You can do this, and you can structure it to fit you and fit your dog. Yeah, yeah. And and I have to, you know, as we say, that's going to be the best Christmas present you can give your dog. Yes, yes. And if you want to take things to another level, give your dog a job. Hmm. For instance, chasing a ball, okay, Playing fetch, chasing a ball, that might look like physical exercise, but oftentimes there's not a lot of mental structure in that. Teach the dog to stay while you throw the ball and then fetch it when you've released him. That is beginning to look like good physical exercise, right? It's got some structure to it. But you can take it to other levels as well. If you've got a dog that likes to play with balls, Teach him to pick up anything you ask him to. This is a job now. You point the newspaper and you say, uh, whatever, fetch. Dog reaches down, picks it up, fetches it, brings it to you. Teach the dog to carry. Okay, there's a basket. Fetch, carry. Right, you're going to carry that now and walk to the neighbor. Okay? In many ways, this is becoming almost a service dog. Yeah. And... Any dog can learn those jobs. Uh, maybe they'll never certify as a service dog, maybe never, but they can still be in service to you. Yeah. And so the dog is learning a job to do. And this is mental exercise. You build a great relationship with your dog because you're teaching him what you want. The dog is doing something which is pleasing you, and it's something which is useful. And that's work, or that's a job. Um. For instance, herding, of course, which I'm into um, with my dogs, that's work, that's a job. We go out and we do a job with the livestock. It happens to have a lot of physical exercise because of the nature of it, but it's got mental exercise as well, and they have to work with me, Mm. partners out there. Yeah. Yeah. They do things I can't do, and I do things they can't do. Okay? But um, service work, literally putting the dog in some sort of service to yourself, why not? It's a job the dog can do for you, and it brings in the best of everything. Mm. Mm. And they love it. I mean, we we are quite lazy, you know, as humans are quite lazy, and we, we like our catch potato time. But generally, if you say to your dog, you know, walk or, you know, if we, with Buddy we get the, um, the alley-oop, you know, the, the weighted stick with the ball on the end um, as a mm-hmm. marker... And as soon as he sees it, his tail's wagging, and he's, he's not sort of going, oh, no, I don't want to do it today. I'll sit, I'll stay on the sofa. You know, they like <laughs> it, don't they? <laughs> they love it. They yeah. absolutely love it. Well, I think many times we underestimate that the thing that the dogs want the most is to, um, 
is to do things with us and for us. Mm. And the more we give them of things that they can do with us and for us, the happier they are. So give your dog the best present you can this Christmas. Keep them occupied and happy. You can find out more about Joyce at her website, which we have a link to on the Dogcast Radio site. And you can hear Joyce talking some more about working sheepdogs and the movie You Lucky Dog in episode 106 of Dogcast Radio. You can run with the big dogs or sit on the porch and bark. Wallace Arnold You're listening to Dogcast Radio on www.dogcastradio.com Buddy's Diary Hello, Buddy the Black Labrador here. It's that funny time of year again. Merry Chris and New Year's. New humans get very excited, and although you keep going on about Merry Chris, he never arrives. I'd like to know who he is and why he's so merry. Maybe I'll find out this year. New Year's is not long after Merry Chris. Frankly, humans could do with some New Year's, because the ones you've got now are just hopeless. So many times, my pack is relaxing in our house when I hear another dog barking in the distance or a car pulling up nearby and I bark, only to be told, quiet buddy, there's nothing to bark about. Nothing as far as they can hear. But maybe with new ears, they could hear as acutely as me. A new nose would be a good idea next, because scent is another human sense that's sadly lacking. I've worked out that for my family, Merry Chris and New Ears means lots of racing around, some shouting, some laughing, and lots of eating and drinking. But what does it mean for us dogs? Well, we don't get as worked up about the whole thing, although it is exciting when visitors are popping in all the time. I love that. The one exception is those visitors who say, Could you put the dogs in another room, please? Why should we go in another room? This is where we live. Why should we be the ones who move? That's just speciesism. Mind you, I don't really mind leaving the room because that kind of person has a really unpleasant scent to them. It gets right up a dog's nose and lingers annoyingly, even after they've left. But most visitors are fun, especially those who bring presents for me and Star. Presents are a good thing. Things to eat, things to play with, all kinds of things. People always manage to complicate even the simplest things, though, and for some reason... They make it difficult for us to get the things to eat or play with by wrapping them up in paper and horrible tape stuff that sticks to your nose and fur if you're not careful, and sometimes even if you are careful. By the time you get all of the paper off your present, you're usually so cross with the sticky tape stuff that you're in the mood to give it a good chewing and don't always notice the present. That always makes my people laugh. But they don't have to get that tape off their teeth, do they? Christmas to a dog is a house full of wonderful food smells, the best one of all being something called turkey. Now we have house key, car key and many other keys all year round, but turkey only seems to come at Christmas and it smells delicious. Turkey doesn't go in a door like other keys, it goes in the oven and it stays in there for hours and hours. My pack is always bigger than usual at Christmas, which is great, and they all sit round the dining table, which isn't so great because Star and I aren't supposed to go in the dining room during a meal time, which isn't fair because the humans don't stop walking through the kitchen when I'm eating my meal, but there you go. If the dining room door is left just slightly open, Star and I scratch and pour at it till we work it open enough to slip through. Then we lie under the table, clearing up any and all food that comes our way. Usually some people take pity on us, and they don't just drop food accidentally, they actually hand it to us. That's the Merry Chris spirit, apparently. After dinner, we usually get a good long walk, and I always wonder why at this time of year someone has turned the heating down so low outside. It's odd, because in the summer, the outdoor heating is usually turned up so high, and it would be so much better if we could be somewhere in the middle all year. But I'm an accepting chap, and a walk is a walk, so off we go. Once we're all back in the warm, it's snooze time for everyone, so we all pile onto the couches and snuggle up together. And for me, that's Christmas. Not the visitors, the presents, the wonderful aromas or the food. It's spending time with my pack. That's what I wish for for every dog. Time with his pack. Till next time, Merry Chris and Happy New Ears.
are smarter than dogs. You can't get eight cats to pull a sled through snow. Jeff Valdez. David Ryan is a clinical animal behaviourist and chair of the Association of Pet Behaviour Counsellors. But I first saw him on a UK television show called It's Only a Theory. He was putting forward a theory on why dogs bark, and straight away I wanted to interview him. However, first of all, I had to get my terminology right because it's not really a theory. When I first contacted you, I, I said the word theory,、um, sure. and, and you said no, it's not a theory. So can you, I suppose first、uh, of all, it's well, not it was a theory because that was the name of it's only a theory, really. Yeah. Um, it's just a, just a kind of bringing together of the of the of the little evidence that、um, that we have about dogs barking,、um, because there isn't a great deal out there,、um, so it's kind of a、um, kind of a putting together of the evidence rather than a、uh, than a solid theory.、Um, I'm 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 not really、um, proposing it as the only reason.、Um, it's just it's just a way of looking at it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Now. One theory around is that dogs domesticated themselves、um, by natural selection because they sort of came to human settlements and sort of our rubbish dumps, and then if there was a human around, the ones that didn't run away stayed and sort of、um, became more friendly to humans. And you compare that with with the experiment with silver foxes, and sort of what that shows is about this process of. Breeding from animals that are more friendly to、um, to humans. Yeah, sure.、Um, the silver fox experiment is really about what we, what they call reduced flight distance.、Um, reduced flight distance just means、um, when you approach an animal of any kind, it doesn't run away as far, as fast, or for as long.、Um, and the, the, I have a really good example of um, um, pigeons, feral pigeons that you see on the street. Um, if it's if a feral pigeon's there eating a bit of leftover pie or whatever the pigeons find on the street to eat,、um, if you walk up to it, it won't actually fly away and stay away for very long. It kind of walks away from you.、Um, you can't you can't actually catch it.、Um, if you try and leap on it, it will get out of the way. But as long as you aren't bothering it too much, it'll kind of just keep that little distance away from you. And that, that's a that's the kind of way that I see dogs developing from wilder creatures that they that they have probably just learned to, if you can stay far enough out of the way, then we're actually not much of a problem for them. Yeah, yeah, and and then as you say that the the friendlier individuals would maybe well have you know bred together. And what effect does that have on on the you know the appearance of the dogs? Well, the, the silver fox experiment、um, was was quite an eye opener, really, because all they were doing was、um, breeding foxes that weren't as stressed.、Um, so they were kind of breeding foxes that, instead of、um, hiding at the back of the cage, snarling and spitting when people approached, were were doing anything less than that. And they gradually, through a process of of breeding the like individuals to the like individuals, which would be the same process that happened. Um, around、um, a human settlement dump, if you like, because the ones that stayed there would breed with the other ones that stayed there.、Um, what they found was that、um, the ones that actually started coming to the front、um, and lost a lost a huge amount of flight distance、um, started to have other effects as well.、Um, Dar- Darwin had a brilliant phrase for it. Darwin called it mysterious correlations.、Mm. Um, but the、um, but the kind of genetic explanation which Darwin didn't have at, at the time. Um, is that if you change one aspect of, of genetics, then kind of other ones get dragged along as well, because genes don't split individually. Genes split in chunks is the best way I can explain it.、Yeah. Um, uh, along with along with one aspect, you get other aspects of change as well.、Uh, and the silver foxes、um, started to show、um, lots of dog-like、um, characteristics,、um, so that、uh, they, they actually started to bark. They had curly tails. They had piebald coats.、Um, they got floppy ears. So you, you can see how, in a few generations, you can go from、uh, a completely wild thing to something that's a lot tamer and is now starting to have the physical、uh, appearance of dogs as well. Yeah, yeah. Now I can remember seeing a documentary on this, and it, it's the other aspect that's interesting to me is. As these changes occur, you know you do get to the stage where, although you know it's it's wrong and you wouldn't do it, you do go, oh, I want one of those. They're so cute. So they do. They appeal to us more, don't they? As well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's another aspect of it. 
Um, and, and that's a, that's about human psychology, isn't yes. it? That's, uh, humans, humans relate to, um, to to animals as well. And yeah, you've got this cute, furry, cuddly creature that quite wants to be around you. So um, human nature says, yeah, that's nice. I'll, I'll cuddle that. That's quite good. Yeah, yeah. So now another point you make is that undomesticated canids rarely, if ever, bark. And their communication is sort of more about body language and posture, posture and expression, so they don't actually use barking between themselves. That's right, because social communication usually takes place when you're in close proximity. Um, you haven't really got a great deal to communicate um, if you can't see another wolf or, or African hunting dog or whatever species you are. Um, so from that point of view, most of the communication is is visual with some olfactory as well as a bit of sniffing goes on too. Um, but, but olfactory communication is about what has happened in the past really. Um, and that's why they leave messages. Um, but the, but most of the social communication is, is face-to-face or sometimes face-to-bum in dogs' cases. Um, and yeah, and most, uh, most wild canids just don't use a bark at all. The, the, the kind of best documented one is a kind of a low woof sound, uh, and that's not a good impression, um, that a, a wolf mother will give to cubs, and it basically means hide quick. Um, it's a little warning woof, if you like. But uh, they certainly don't seem to have the, the range of barking that domestic dogs do, and all the readiness to bark that, that domestic dogs do. Um, and domestic dogs will be the only ones that have that, that um, range and quickness to bark, if you like. Yeah, yeah. Now, another point you make is that perhaps we have forced them to sort of turn to barking as an alternative because we've deliberately changed their, their bodies and the way they are able to use those bodies to communicate. That's right. Um, social communication, if, you, if we look at wolf-to-wolf social communication, it's marvellously expressive. They've got, the, they've got the ears to do the job. The, their ears can be back down sideways, pricked all over the place. Um, faces wrinkle up or, or droop. or um, they, they, have, they quite often have um, like markings on their brows. Um, that accentuates what, what's happening with their eyes. And again, their eyes can go from like marvellously wide open to tiny little slits. Um, and then you start on, the, on the, the appearance of their jaws and their teeth and their lips. Um, and that's just the head. We've, got the whole, we've then got the whole body. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and it goes right down to the tail, which can be held in various different ways, wagged in different ways, moved up, down, sideways, uh, curled under. Um, and then you look at domestic dogs, and there's just, um, I mean, uh, not, not getting at particular dog breeds, but if you look at particular dog breeds, such as bulldogs or, uh, or some of the poodles with the hair that completely covers their face, um, there's no way that domestic dogs can have the same range of communication um, that, that the wilder canids can. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even the fact, you, you don't even have to look at specific breeds. Just the fact that we breed for solid colours in some breeds. Absolutely. Um, yeah. we, I mean, my dog is, is a black Labrador, and, and I know some black dogs sort of do ha- have trouble sort of with other dogs, not attacking, but being perhaps aggressive, because they can't read the black face. It's all solid, and you must get that with other colours as well. And really? I, do, I always love those dogs that have the little brown eyebrows, you know, you yeah. sort of rotties and things. And it does add to that expression. It does. It adds to that ability to communicate, um, and if and if dogs can can read what another dog communicating relatively easily, then it's going to make your social social communication so much easier, uh, and there's less threat involved. Um, if you if you can't tell what another dog's saying, then from a dog's perspective, you're kind of immediately on your guard because you don't you don't know whether they're going to be nice to you or not nice to you. Yeah. Uh, it's easy to see how how um, aggressive behaviour can develop from that. Um, because if you're going into a communication or you're going into a situation where you're not sure how to communicate, um, then it's it's a lot more defensive. It's a lot more worrying for you. Yeah, yeah. Now, having developed this ability to bark, um, there are various reasons why a dog will bark spontaneously, aren't there? Yeah. Um, we're, we're not. If we if we just take barking and don't take. Um, kind of rumbling, mumbling, growling, you know, whispering and the other things that dogs do, yeah. uh, all the ways that they communicate. If we just take barking, then um, from all the studies that I've done, they seem to group them into about 
half a dozen, maybe five, maybe seven different categories um, of, of, of times that dogs will bark um, because there aren't that many different occasions, oh, different occasions, different situations in which dogs bark have different um, types of bark. Mm. So if we if we look at the, people call them different things and different studies all, all, all give them names, but they're just names that people are putting on them so that we can identify the things that dogs are doing at the time. And it generally falls into things like fear, frustration, uh, anger, excitement, pleasure, uh, and loneliness. And those are the kind of times that we find that dogs will do specific kind of barking communication. And usually if your dog's barking, it'll fit into one of those sort of categories. Yeah, yeah. Now, with with the human relationship, with that canine-human relationship, what was the advantage that, that barking gave them with us? I think the difficulty for dogs is that, in the first place, we bred out the ability to communicate particularly well using facial and body expression. Uh, and the other, is, the other thing is, we don't pay them enough attention anyway. So whilst... Um, if a dog wanted to communicate to another dog, should we go for a walk, they'd probably stand up and nod towards the door. And the, and the other dog would understand that perfectly well um, because it's a, it's a very direct and it's a very obvious way of communicating it. But if our dog wants to go for a walk and we're doing the dishes or not paying it any particular attention, then the only way it's got of communicating with us is to go, Hey, want to go for a walk. So, so it will still do the walking and nodding towards the door, but you also get a bark in there as well. Um, and if that, if that works for the dog, then it's going to continue to do it, not only in that, but in other situations as well. So it's easy to see how, from the dog's point of view, um, the bark has become a, a kind of a look at me because I'm trying to tell you something, communication. Yeah, yeah. I was, when I was reading that part of your um, article, it's, we, we have two dogs. We have a Labrador and we have a Bichon Frise. And the Labrador is a little bit reticent to, to bark at us. You know, he's quite passive and he's sort of, I, I don't really want to bark at you. So he actually will do the standing at the door, just looking, you know, and yeah. I, I'd like to go out now, you know. Waiting patiently for you to take some notice, yeah. Yes, yeah, and you'll find him, and I don't know how long he's been standing there. And he's just, and he, he does flick his eyes at you and the door and sort of, yeah. you know, and... Yeah. Heaven knows how long he has to stand there sometimes, whereas the Bichon will, she will bark, she will hurl herself at the door and she'll bark and bark and bark. And, yeah. and it works because you, you hurtle out going, what on earth's the matter? And then you realise she wants to go out. That's right, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, and we'll even encourage it sometimes. And lots of people train their dogs to say woof, to ask to be let out so that you don't need to pay them that attention. Uh, and that, that can save puddles on the floor when you've got little puppies and you're training them. If you can train your dog to do something that's more than just low-level communication, then it's beneficial to us as well. So I'm not saying it's necessarily a bad thing. I'm just looking for an explanation, I guess. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it, it really is fascinating because I, I, I love, you know, thinking about and discussing that human-canine bond and the interaction and how we've you know, supported each other and developed this relationship. And it's, it's really fascinating. But to think we actually caused them or set them on the path to barking is fascinating. It is, yeah. It's, it's one of the inter more interesting parts of that, of that two-way communication that we've got going. Um, and, it, and I guess it's, it's uh, interesting to realise that sometimes um, they're actually taking the initiative, which I think they probably are when they're barking. Of trying to take the initiative and, and, and get through to us um, in a way of saying, you're not paying me enough attention. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Will you listen? It's almost like they're having to shout to get through to us. Yeah, yeah. So I guess in some ways, if your dog barks a lot, a lot um, you could try just paying them more attention. Um, the, you, could, you could pick up on the communication before they bark, absolutely. Pay them some more attention. If you, if you don't want your dog to bark, the ideal time to do it is just before they've started barking. So if you can predict what they want beforehand, and it'll, it'll be almost certainly possible to do that from, from the actions that they're doing before they bark, um, then you'll be able to get in at that point, fulfil whatever it is that they needed at that point, and then there's no need for them to bark. Yeah, yeah. Um, David, I know you've got lots of interesting things on your website. Um, what's the website address? Where can people find out more about you? 
Okay, my website's um, <laughs> the ironically named Dog Secrets. It's uh, www.dog-secrets.co.uk. Um, and I say ironically because it's my contention that there aren't actually any dog secrets and that people who pretend there are secret ways of, of communicating with dogs are actually just having a bit of a laugh. Um, there aren't any secret ways of communicating with dogs. It's really about understanding um, and understanding them on their level. And once you can do that, then our communication with dogs starts to become a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, I absolutely agree. Several years ago, when we first had Buddy, I suppose he'd have been about one or two, when he was little, he, when he got into a car, he wanted to be on the seat. And I wanted him to be in the footwell. So you'd have this situation where he was on the passenger seat and I'd be on the driver's seat going, get on the floor, get down, get down. And he would, he would turn his head away from me. And I interpreted that as he's, he's pretending I'm not here, he's ignoring me. Uh, yeah. And it wasn't till somebody pointed out, no, he's saying you're stressing me, you know, and he's turning really? away. And that just opened this door for me and I thought, oh, I have to find out more about what it is he's trying to communicate to me. Yeah, absolutely. Dogs, dogs are, are fantastic communicators if we give them the chance, that's the thing. We've got to give them that chance um, and understand it on their level. Um, and, it, and it's not that difficult, it's just that it's not taught in schools. We've got to go out and learn it from, from somewhere. That's the, um, if, you, if you really want to start to understand your dog, you've got to go and learn it. If you'd like to learn more about your dog and how to understand him, we have a link to David's Dog Secrets website on the Dogcast Radio site. And we also have a link to his Why Do Dogs Bark article. Thanks to David for sharing a fascinating subject with us. To err is human. To forgive, canine. Hello and welcome to the Dogcast Radio News Desk. I'm Kate. And I'm Nick. All working dogs deserve a wonderful retirement when their working life is finished. But for Vike, a retired narcotic sniffer dog in New Jersey, USA, that nearly didn't happen. German shepherd dog Vike had to stop work when he was diagnosed with degenerative myelopathy, a condition which caused him to lose the use of his back legs. Vike's handler, patrolman Joseph Chaplinski, appealed for help and Mark Robinson of HandicapPets.com supplied a specially made canine wheelchair a set of wheels attached to the dog's rear end that enables him to get around. After eight years of work, let's hope Vike has a long, happy retirement. Meanwhile in Japan, a dog is just starting out on her police career, and she may well be the world's smallest police dog. Momo, who is a chihuahua, has just been accepted as a police search and rescue dog, and her tiny stature of around six pounds means she can access areas and situations that larger dogs would be unable to. Now, of course, size in dogs is not an accurate indication of courage, as was demonstrated recently in South Dakota, USA. Jack, an appropriately named Jack Russell, was out with his owner, Chad Strange, on farmland when he began barking loudly. Chad hurried to see what had upset his dog and was amazed to see that Jack was barking ferociously at the bottom of a tree up which a mountain lion had retreated. Dogs are notorious for not seeming to be aware of their relative size, so maybe, to a dog, a cat is a cat, even when it's really a big cat. When Les Parsons was walking his German shepherds, Ellie and Jones, he didn't suspect that he and his dogs would end up making headlines. Unfortunately, diabetic Les's blood sugar fell to such a point that he collapsed to the ground. While Ellie stayed with Les, licking his face and keeping him conscious, rescue dog Jones ran the quarter of a mile home and fetched Les's wife and stepdaughter to help him. This is made all the more impressive because Jones is a recovering agoraphobic, so running all that way alone was a huge achievement. Apparently, both dogs have been given even more fuss and treats as usual to say thank you. We all think our dog is the best dog in the world, and we all enjoy telling people about them. But when you're a famous actor, you can get your dog more attention than the average pooch. Simon Pegg is besotted with his dog Minnie, to the point where he wants her to get parts in his movies. She filmed scenes in Simon's film, How to Lose Friends and Alienate People, but was written out because she was too naughty. However, when a scene in his movie, Burke and Hare, called for an Edinburgh street dog, Minnie was more than equal to the task and will at last get her 15 minutes of fame. And of course, in dog years, 15 minutes is a lot longer. Let's hope she enjoys herself.
And that's all from us on the Dogcast Radio News Desk. Goodbye. Cat's motto. No matter what you've done wrong, always try to make it look like the dog did it. Well, that's it for 2010 from Dogcast Radio. It's been an eventful year for us in many ways, and we look forward to sharing anything and everything dog-related with you in 2011. We'd all like to wish you a happy Christmas and a peaceful, healthy new year. Till next time, look after yourselves and your dogs. Thanks for listening to Dogcast Radio, available from www.dogcastradio.com. That's D-O-G-C-A-S-T radio.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, and wherever you are in the world, we'd love to hear from you. You can do so in a variety of ways. By phone from the UK, you can contact us on 0121-288-0922. From the US, you can contact us on our American number, which is 315-849-2022. From any other country, you'll need your international exit code and then 44121-288-0922. You can contact us on Skype with the ident Dogcast Radio. That's all one word, Dogcast Radio. By email, you can contact me on julie at dogcastradio.com. When contacting us by email, if you have the facilities, please record your questions or comments and send them to us as an audio file. That way we can include them directly in our programme. We can accept most formats, for example, WAV, MP3. All these methods of contacting us can be found on our website, which is www.dogcastradio.com. And as ever, the final word goes to Jenny. What happened to the dog that ate nothing but garlic? His bark was much worse than his bite.